Kings podcast brought to you by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. I'm just back from Australia, where I spoke at the Australian Fodder Industry Association meeting, and I want to say a quick thank you to Feed Central for making that all possible. On my trip, I flew into Brisbane and over to Toowoomba, down to Gundawindi, and and if you're from Australia, all of these names are going to sound familiar to you, and then ended up in Albury and down to Yarrawonga, through Shepparton, Bendigo, Echuca. I'm just listing off random places in Australia, but I really, I promise you that I made it through Kerrang, down to Bort, St. Arnaud. Uh, let's see here. And again, if you're from Australia, Warwick Nobels might mean something to you, but it might not. Places like Hopeton to South Australia to Meningi and up to Freeling. So I was across a good portion of Victoria and South Australia, Queensland, and then I saw the very top and the very bottom of New South Wales. It was quite the long trip and I had just a, a great experience. And what I want to do is bring an Australian into this conversation. Now, I'm going to introduce James Williamson. He's originally from, well, not too far outside of uh, Bendigo, where the AFIA meeting was held. And he's also been one of my Hay Kings moderators for several years now, to which I'm deeply indebted to him because moderating a social media group is about the most thankless job on the face of the earth. Uh, welcome, James. Yeah, thanks for the introduction, John. I'm glad to be on the podcast here with you to talk a little bit about my my home country. I was I was literally in your backyard within you were within ten minutes from your dad's farm, and I, I wish I'd have known that day. Yeah, so we um, for the for the listeners, I currently live in Minnesota, USA. Uh, lived here with my wife and young family for several years now, uh, but grew up in central Victoria near where John visited uh, Bendigo and uh, he passed through Malden, which is just around the corner from from my family's farm there where mum and dad still live and grow loose and hay or alfalfa as it's known here in the States right. um, and lots of other lots of other product um, crops too. But yeah, it was a, a strange coincidence that John's kind of been to my hometown more or less, but we've never actually met in person, spoke <laughs> right. on the phone lot. but he's kind of been to my house, uh, but I wasn't there and uh, we still haven't met, but one day we'll meet up, John, I'm sure. Oh, I have no doubt. Probably, probably in Europe or something like that. <laughs> that's, that's the way these kind of things work, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you had a fantastic trip. You've almost seen more of Australia than I have. You, you covered most of the eastern seaboard and then over into the middle parts of uh, Australia. Yeah. Um, I, I you know, they make there's songs about the Mallee, right? I should ask you if you're related to John Williamson. There is. Uh, I mean, there is a John Williamson in our family, but not in a- my family, but it's not that John Williamson <laughs> for any country music fans out there. There's a moderately famous Australian guy called John Williamson who's had a few good songs, but um, not my John Williamson, unfortunately. I'm not getting any royalties. <laughs> not getting a cut of that. <laughs> but uh, that... 
that Mali country is something special. Yeah, it's uh, it can get kind of dry and dusty, but uh, it's it's lovely. Um, I guess a question for you is of all the towns and places that you you kind of visited, um, what was the one that that sort of stuck out the most or intrigued you the most? I have to say that Hopeton up in the Mallee really stuck out to me. And there's three people cheering, listening to this podcast about where I'm talking about Hopeton in the Mallee. Very, very rural, very, very small town. Middle, and that's getting to be the, the Mallee is the middle of nowhere in Australia. I mean, second only to the whole of the Northern Territory, right? Yeah, you're really getting into the uh, middle parts of Australia. I've just brought up the statistics on Hopeton. There was uh, the last census eight years ago. Now there was 739 residents. So right. that gives everyone an idea of how uh, small it is. Yeah, no, it's. I I think that was probably the most true blue Australian feeling town that I found. There was no McDonald's <laughs> or uh, or no Mac, K- no Mackers, KFC. right? That's right. Yeah, no Maccas. No <laughs> Maccas. Yeah, that's what we call McDonald's in Australia, Maccas. Everything gets abbreviated. You probably picked up on that, John. Every, everything gets shortened except uh, beetroots, right? We we just beet call roots, them true. We just call them beets. And you guys put them on your hamburgers. That tastes delicious. Did you have one? I did. It it actually was pretty good. Yeah, it's a little bit of sweet. You end up with it going all over you, though, so it's not one to eat with a nice white. You know, business shirt or right. don't eat one before your wedding day. Right. <laughs> so Hopeton stuck out. Um, I guess you covered a lot. You started up in Brisbane, which is, and then headed out to Toowoomba and Gundawindi. We were chatting, you know, offline about that's kind of cotton country. Yeah. Um, I think you saw a lot of uh, ponds, as you call them. Yeah. yeah, water storage, right? It's You posted some of those photos on your social media as well. I think. Yeah, I did. The The thing that stuck out to me about that part of the country, uh, the water the water rights and allocations, we would say water rights in the States, and you, you talk about water allocations, but they're pretty close to the same thing. Mm-hmm. The, the more variable the rainfall and ac- the more variable the access to water, the bigger you want your storages to be, right? Mm-hmm. They have really big storages. So that tells me that the rainfall in kind of southern Queensland, it, it comes and it goes. And when it comes, it really comes. And when it goes, it's it's dry. Variable is the word. Variable, yeah. So I think I think this water pond, this this storage and reservoir, I guess, when it's mm-hmm. twenty acres and, and six meters deep, that's a that's a really big water storage. Yeah, that's big, and um, I mean it's big enough you could water ski in it. It, it. it was it was huge. Yeah, and there's uh, there's a lot of them up that way. That's been a, a kind of a, a hot political potato for a lot of time. So we I, could do a whole series of podcasts on that. I'm sure the people you were meeting with had some strong opinions. And I, myself, coming from a, an irrigation farm south of them, um, had some opinions about that. But we we might kind of detour that for another day. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to stay out of the political environment here and just say that the Murray River that starts in Queensland and runs down through New South Wales and is the border between New South Wales and Victoria, and then dumps out basically at Adelaide in South Australia, is mm-hmm. not a big river. 
No, no, it's not uh, compared to myself being up here in Minnesota. Uh, you know, the Mississippi is significantly bigger. Ah, it's um, massive compared to to the yeah. Murray. It's it's not even comparable. Yeah, it's uh, in, in here in America they probably call it a crick. A crick. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm guilty of of spelling it C R E E K and and in polite company calling it a creek. But if yep. I were to just talk about the creek that's at the bottom of the hill by my house here, that's the way it yeah. would come out. Yeah, as water is, you know, out your way where you are in Washington and you know, all over the really a lot of places at the moment with the dry, the droughts getting around, water's a hot topic and always. it's a hot topic in Australia too. So always yeah. Um, but those those on farm storages are pretty profitable when it rains. Mm-hmm. Um they're sort of marvels of engineering. Yeah, marvels of engineering is absolutely the case. But they said it holds six million dollars worth of water when it's completely full. So yeah, that just gives you some ideas to the capital intensity of these operations. As you say, we've got to make the most of the the big floods uh, when they come and and maximize them. So that would have been fantastic. Yeah, interesting to see. I think you. You then said you went through Sydney. You went. You saw the Sydney airport, and then you kept on moving. So yeah, I didn't get out of Sydney. I didn't get out of the airport at Sydney, so it doesn't count. I've not been to Sydney. Yeah, and then you came down to Albury, which is which is kind of northwest, northeast of of Melbourne, which is the capital of Victoria. Um, and it's I think you, it's not too far from the Snowy River country. Mm-hmm. And my my mom's favorite movie was The Man from Snowy River. Oh, how about that? Yeah. Yeah, you're not too far away from, uh, uh, yeah, I guess the closest, yeah, uh, the mountain that, range of Australia, the uh, tallest mountain in Australia. You weren't too far away from it. We call it a mountain, but it's only, uh, it's only seven and a half thousand feet. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. I think it's, I, I looked it, it up. I thought it was 7,000, a little over 7,000 feet. Either way, it's, uh, it's yeah, not, not too tall. I, I mean, <laughs> I can look out my window where I'm sitting right now and see a 7,000 foot tall mountain. That's nothing really special in the States. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, Australia had a big, uh, famous, uh, nation building project i guess after world war ii to, to dam the, the snowy river which flows from that mountain range mm-hmm. and uh Albury's one of the major towns nearby but as you say john the man from snowy river was yeah about a cattleman who who runs cattle in that national park and they still do that a little bit but yeah Albury's a, Albury's a fun town to visit and mm-hmm. i think you visited a few uh hay processes there is that what you were saying so uh shout out to bryce at multi-cube in Yarrawonga. For giving mm-hmm. us a fantastic tour, uh, that that was really the first time I got to see the the teasers that they mm-hmm. use to unbale and rebale oat and hay for export. That's okay. that's something completely foreign to me. They they'll break down these big bales and then run them through a small um, industrial stationary baler to get down mm-hmm. to the export product that kind of the Japanese and Koreans are used to seeing. Okay, so they'll take a 8 by 4 by 3 Yes. Big bale, uh, cut the strings on it, and feed it through like a, is it a, a mulcher? Like, the, has it got knives on this thing, or they just yeah, kind of... picture a rotating drum with knives on it, and then okay. it, it kind of tears the bale apart and goes onto a conveyor, and from the conveyor it goes into that stationary baler. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break there and we'll get a word from our sponsor. My name is Rob Flowers, I live in Whitesboro, Texas. 
the 604R premium efficiency level is through the roof. Dependability and durability on the 604R has been outstanding. We've had zero chain issues, zero bearing issues. The camless pickup has been phenomenal. And at the end of the day, that gives me more time to go home and be with my family. Prepare for the next day. Get more done. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. And what size are those bales and what weight? I don't know how to explain this to somebody that's not seen an export package, but I think it's like a 20 or 25 kg uh, half cut bale. And okay. it's really interesting because I come from the U.S. West Coast where we have the three string kind of 50, 50 kg, 110 pound bales. Mm-hmm. And everybody in Australia fainted dead away when I told them that 50 kg bales were kind of our norm. Something mm-hmm. about health and safety rules and regulations. Too heavy. Too heavy, Too yeah. Heavy <laughs> but the export industry was really built on those three tie bales and they would take that 110 pound or 50 kg bale double compress it so put it in a big hydraulic press mm-hmm. squeeze it to half its length put six plastic bands around it mm-hmm. and then cut it in half so mm-hmm. in that way you ended up with well in that case 250 uh, 225 kilo bales or about six, yeah. so, somewhere in the neighborhood 55 60 pounds yeah mm-hmm and it's that bale that they're replicating as they're okay. pressing hay in Australia. Yeah. So that was, uh, okay, got it. Yeah. So you're, you're talking back in the day, they'd take the, the, the 110 pounders and cut them in half, essentially. Yeah. Well, they, today, not back in the day. They, they still do it. They still do that in America. Okay. Yeah. And then when they cut down, uh, now we would say three by fours, but in Australia, you have to specify eight by four by three just to say that it's a big bale. Mm-hmm. Uh, they take those big bales and they'll cut them down here in the States, both Washington, California, Oregon, uh, Utah. There's there's several places on the West Coast that do that sort of thing. But they'll cut them down and try to replicate that uh, that traditional half-cut three-tie bale. Well, and I, I and it really isn't any different in Australia. The export industry in, in Australia looks a, a lot like the export industry in the States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the teasing... Is something completely different. something you hadn't seen yes. before because that's where they're putting them. They're taking it from the biggest bale you can get into the pretty much the smallest you can get. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's a 25 kg. And that's um, these 25 kg bales that the that they started as eight by four by three. Yep. What they, how, what was their dimensions? Like they would have been, they would have uh, been about half the size oh, of, I a, can, of I can a 50 tell you pound this. one. Yeah, because you're looking at maybe 20, it should, it should work out to 22 inches long, 11 inches wide and 16 inches tall. Okay. If that makes sense to you. It, it's it's no regular dimension that comes out of yeah. any small baler, but yeah, it, okay. it does make sense if you're thinking about a 22-inch wide, 16-inch tall, 44-inch long three-tie bale that they've double mm-hmm. compressed and then cut in half lengthways. Got it. Okay. And did you ask why, um, I guess I guess Australia just moved away from those three-by-three three bales that you, you yourself produce on your farm? 
just due to efficiencies, better efficiencies with the going even bigger and then cutting them back down is easier? Is that sort of why? Yeah, so they have to get the density for ocean-free, right? So if you're exporting that product, it's going into a in a 20-foot a or 40-foot ocean-going container and, mm-hmm. and being exported to Japan, South Korea, China, Taiwan, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia, UAE. Those are, those are kind of the big markets for the export hay. And Australia competes directly against the U.S. in grass hay markets. So that mm-hmm. oat and hay that's most common that's the most common export product from australia competes basically head-to-head with uh northwest timothy uh maybe hay that i grow right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and sudan and bermuda and that kind of stuff that's grown in southern california in the imperial valley so technically um, i mean not technically oaten is a grass itself yeah um yep that's a, often a misconception. I mean, it's, people it's, that it, it's, it's a kind of cereal. In with, yeah, it's a cereal, I guess. It, but um, wheat, wheat is a grass. Barley is a grass. Oats are a grass. Mm-hmm. They're just usually harvested for their seed heads, right? So that's interesting that you saw that that teasing out. Was that something that you that was at Multi Cube in Albury Wodonga, and they also do the uh, little cubes, as their name might suggest, the extruded. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. What well, would you call them? Like little, I mean, they're cubes, but they're kind of bigger than a sugar cube. But, um, well, yeah. I, they're maybe two inches by two inches, mm-hmm. uh, by uh, two inches square, right? So, somewhere in that neighborhood. And sometimes they're made to be really hard for certain markets, and sometimes they're made to be a little softer for other markets. And, mm-hmm. and then pellets also. So, uh, I think most everybody's familiar with like grain pellets that are maybe an inch or an inch long, yeah. 25 mils long. The big ones would be kind of the diameter of your little finger, and then they get a little smaller from there. Interesting. Okay, yeah. So this is all at multi-cube. So that's a multifaceted operation. Which oh, it really is. Interesting, interesting to see. Yep. Up at uh, Yarrawonga, and then you went south to... I guess that took you to Bendigo. Yep, Bendigo um, for the the, AFIA conference. conference. Yeah. They had field days at Elmore. I was really impressed by the line of of equipment they had there. Kuhn had some triple mowers that they put me in the tractor and asked me if I wanted to run in front of 120 people on a piece of equipment that I'd never touched before. I declined, (laughs) but I did ride along. (laughs) <laughs> and it was ryegrass that was only, okay. I don't, nine inches or a foot tall. And it was sopping wet. Mm-hmm. It was so wet. And those coon triple mowers powered right through it. I was very impressed. Then they wow, had okay. several Australian made rakes there. Very, mm-hmm. very heavy duty built rakes. And I absolutely loved the the construction of them because they had mm-hmm. their, their unique... They had their unique designs, mm-hmm. but all of the hydraulic hoses were off-the-shelf fittings. All the hydraulic motors were off-the-shelf motors, nothing nothing special, nothing fancy. The bearings were all off-the-shelf, and then all the nuts and bolts. So anything that, you, that would commonly fail on any mm-hmm. piece of equipment, you could just go to the store down the road and, and get it. So I was... Interesting. Like... These are modern, contemporary, industrial farming 
pieces of equipment. And I love that mentality around repair, the ability to repair them. Yeah, the rakes, uh, as you mentioned, going to, uh, as we'll get to, I guess, you meant to, went to Hopeton, which is, you know, you're getting in fairly low-yielding areas, so the rakes are important to be able to bring the windrows together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, get the, to get the feed for those big 8x4x3 bales, which typically weigh up to, you know, sometimes they can get them up to almost 2,000 pounds. Uh, um, out of the out of the baler, so so feed central puts on a heaviest bale competition okay and and they have in their systems all the records all all the scale tickets or um waybridge waybridge scales and waybridges are the same thing uh all the waybridge records and i want to say uh, i'm starting to get my numbers mixed up but i want to say it was 927 kilos in an 8 by 4 by 3 times okay. 2.2 pounds. So, yeah, it was so 900. No, no, no. A ton. It was over a short ton. It was 2,039 pounds. Mm. In an it's eight, almost a proper ton, though. Uh, yeah, I know. Australia, Australia uh, does proper tons. It's going to be 1,000 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to take into account the 10% difference, right? Yeah, because a metric ton is twenty two hundred. I'm not pounds. sure that I'm not sure you'd want to. I'm not sure you'd want to. That'd be putting a pretty sh- big strain on the baler if you punched out five hundred of those in a day. But that's quite impressive, nonetheless. I hope it didn't catch fire either. <laughs> that was another thing. The first hay bale that I saw being made in Australia. Now this was in Queensland, and I'm told that it was going straight to a feedlot. But it was probably 17 or 18% moisture, and it just made me cringe a little bit because we don't... That was don't, a big bale? Yeah, that was an 8 by 4 by 3 Yeah, you wouldn't want to put that in the, sh- yeah. in the shed, as we say, for next winter because it wouldn't be there. It'd be on fire, but right. it was just going down the road. I guess that's not a problem. But I, one of the things that I learned is that oat and hay takes a long time to dry. Yeah, much much longer than lucerne or, or alfalfa, right? Uh, it can do, yeah. If you're not um, some of those bigger operators, just with the scale, often they they try and cut, like not cut corners, but might not condition it necessarily. Um, right. Sometimes they use a a grain header, so or a, or a swather, I say, um, you know, a big swather you'd call them here. Yeah, to lay down the hay just to cover the country, um, which we'll get to. I think you saw some some fairly big fields, so yeah. sometimes it'll be hard to give it a good squash to get it to dry out with the condition. I do have to say that every farm that I stopped at, they were running a razor bar, uh, so an Agco razor bar header, mm-hmm. or a John Deere, sorry, header means combine in, in Australia, so I should be careful mm-hmm. about that. Uh so a razor bar, cutter bar, several of them had, and I'm going to try to name drop every manufacturer. Nobody's paying me to say any of this. McDon power units on those razor bar cutter bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the nice reason they had the McDon's on the cutter bars is because the hydraulics, I, so I was told that the hydraulics on the Agco, on the Massey Swathers, don't respond to the changing in con- ground contour fast enough. And they wanted an old fashioned spring loaded lifting system that the McDon has. 
but I, I'm calling these things old fashioned at the same time that we're talking about something that's running north of 200 horsepower cutting hay, right? So I, yeah, I, I wouldn't yeah. call that old fashioned. So I saw several of those setups. I saw several straight Massey swathers, um, a couple of John Deere pull behind machines. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, I mean, it, it's all modern contemporary stuff that you would hear, see here in the States. And several of the farms that we stopped at actually stack the the big square bales outside and moisture probe every single one of them before they mm. put them in their sheds. So yeah, some some probably a hard learned lesson behind that. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. There, there's there. I think there's probably more hay fires in Australia than there would be here in the states. So did you just to double check on that with those machines? Did they have they weren't conditioning it or they were they did, they, were, they had rollers? Those they were, yeah. all the ones. So the the coon triples that I saw. That was that was much more of a silage type demonstration, but I think all of the machines that I saw had conditioners in them. But I did see a couple of the sorry the big wide cutter bars without Ooh. conditioners with a the oh I'm losing my words here the belt conveyor got it yeah the draper header that's what I was looking for yeah the draper header and um, I mean most most serious. Oat and hay producers will be conditioning their hay, yeah. um, or they even if they don't do it at the time of cutting, you can, you'll see um, macerators. Sometimes, yeah, the standalone conditioner just they just after it's been put in the windrow, they'll just drive along and and squash it. Often, if that's uh, you know weather's coming, they'll give it a give it multiple goes through that to um, try and get it to dry out faster. But right. um, and they're big fans of tall, skinny windrows. Mm-hmm. Because yep. they're trying to avoid the sun bleaching, yep. so they're trying to yep. minimize the amount of that windrow that's exposed to the sun for two or three weeks that it takes to dry that hay. Yeah, that's staggering yeah. to me. And that's that's kind of one of the drawbacks of making such big bales. You know, eight by four by three, and you're talking yeah. they got to be dry, you know, dry. Six, you know, five hundred to seven hundred kilos. It's it's got to be dry. Yeah. So that's that's the, sort of the only downside. So that's interesting. So then, where did you? So you did the AF, um, the AFIA conference. What was some of the other highlights of the conference? So they did the rake demonstrations, and then they had a couple of silage round balers that they mm-hmm. demonstrated. The only downside was they were trying to show off the capacity of the rakes, and it it did not fare well for the round balers because the windrows they weren't they were windrows designed to show off the what the rake can do they weren't nice consistent windrows so i felt a little bad a little bit bad for the manufacturers that had balers out there because they just weren't that it wasn't good conditions for those round balers and then my hats off to the case guys mm-hmm. that put a sopping wet absolutely sopping wet Ryegrass through a eight by a three by four big square baler. It's just as background in Australia. It's kind of late winter, yes, early spring. It's not even spring yet, so it would have been when you say it's wet. Like I mean, it was proper wet. <laughs> eighty or ninety. I mean, this grass had to have been eighty or ninety percent water. That's great. So that's that's interesting. So you saw some good machinery. Yeah. Um, and then I know there was a lot of great speakers at the conference, yourself included, but was there yeah. yeah, any anyone that sort of stuck out, particularly from the sessions you sat in on? There was some really active discussion on whether hay price data should be collected in Australia. 
that was fascinating to me because I'm an ag economist from the States and we are super transparent about how now whether whether you think the USDA estimates are accurate or not is is mm-hmm. always like is always a point of discussion. I always contend that the USDA hay data is good. At least we have something to argue about on the right. number of acres that are in corn, soybeans, wheat, hay, cotton, sorghum, like all the different all the different commodities, we at least have mm-hmm. production mm-hmm. estimates. And I think that exists in Australia. We have yield estimates uh, that are good. And then we have hay price data. And I, I guess I, I've always taken that for granted because that mm-hmm. hay price data doesn't exist in, in Australia. No, it's, it's uh, I mean, Feed Central is one of the main places. I think that's probably why they're so successful is that uh, a lot of folks will look to see what things are selling for on there and yeah. use that as, a, as their kind of their guide for when they go to sell. Right, um, right. So, yeah, for folks not using Feed Central or not Australian who haven't used it, it's essentially a marketplace um, for, for hay and commodities, um, farmer to farmer with with uh, Feed Central acting as a, as a broker, but they do a lot of testing services. I think they come and inspect all the hay that gets sold through the platform. So it is kind of standardized, which adds a lot of confidence to the process. That you, you know, you have kind of a, a, a middleman there um, mm-hmm. adding value through, you know, getting it tested and assessing the color and all that other stuff. Um, but, yeah, that's that's one of the main reasons why they're so successful is, is those services. But you're right. There's no – the government, unfortunately, doesn't help us out with that stuff in Australia like they do here. And the only thing that I'd add to that discussion is not all USDA data is funded by taxpayers. And mm-hmm. I can think about our hops industry. So if you like drinking beer, you probably know what a hop is, Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that's no mystery. Uh, I know in the Northwest, where Washington and Oregon and Idaho, where most of the hops are grown, the growers actually fund the USDA, like the the Hops Growers Association funds the USDA data collection. So it is, and I know Australia has the Bureau of Statistics. I wonder if there's ever a, a discussion to have the Australian. Uh, Bureau of Statistics funded by AFIA to do that data collection. I, I, I don't know if that's ever a thought yeah. process. Probably someone's thought of it, but I think a lot of farmers would say they probably give the government enough money as it is, as everyone always does at tax time. Yes. Um, and there are some other government, uh, they, well, they're technically not government, I guess, but quasi-government organizations that are funded by various levies and surcharges yes. um, in, other, in other industries in Australia that are quite successful um, thinking about, you know, sheep and uh, beef, cattle, meat and livestock Australia, um, grain corp, uh, not grain corp, but grain and research development, oh, yeah. uh, which is funded by grain levies Yep. Um, when you sell grain in Australia. So, I think probably just the fragmented nature of hay in Australia is probably holding that back to some degree and that they can't just charge would kind of be a blunt tool to try and charge hay growers because yeah, we have those um, we do have those same problems in the states yeah because we're always one uh, like there's always discussions about funding our hay growers associations and getting research dollars to do hay research which is something that I'm kind of passionate about I 
when you when you look at the corn yield change in the U.S. over the last hundred years, we have mm-hmm. states that are producing fifteen hundred percent more more corn. Yeah, and then our our alfalfa yields have doubled in that hundred mm-hmm. years. Yeah, or yeah, maybe maybe tripled in that same time frame. So it's just hard to see uh, a path to get that funding, and it's those are things that folks here in the States work on all the time. I think this has been a great discussion and I want to say thank you very much, James. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have a good chat about uh, my home country and look forward to you know seeing some of the photos that you post up uh, in the group. John, I think everyone would get a kick out of them and thanks oh. for having me on and I hope everyone enjoyed it. Yeah. I'll have to do some more of that. So keep on the lookout for more back from Australia pics. Thank you very much to Vermeer for making this podcast possible. Thank you very much to Nick Palmieri at Palmieri Sound for doing our audio editing and Jessica Palmieri for our social media coordination. And if you ask Jessica where she got her name, she's going to tell you. It comes from uh, the man from Snowy River. Snowy River.